you know, in my mind, it's self-aid, fire, shelter, water, signal for rescue or navigation. Food doesn't even come into the equation. I noticed in my own kids that they wanted to be on a computer. They wanted to be on the Game Boy. They wanted to be on the Nintendo. And they didn't want to be outside anymore. They didn't want to camp. They didn't want to use a knife. They didn't want to use an axe. They didn't want to hunt. They didn't want to fish. There's a romance to opening up a book and holding it in your hand mm -hmm. that you can't get from the internet. Yep. Everybody wants the romanticism of primitive skills. But primitive skills should be the last thing you have to rely on. Hey guys, welcome to The Survival Show Podcast. I'm David, just back from a week with my best friend Karen celebrating our 30th anniversary in the beautiful area around Asheville, North Carolina. If you haven't been there, you need to get there. But I'm here today with no Craig and no Ben. But my crazy schedule promises me that we will all be back together again soon. That's right, I own it. I am the problem. But if all goes well, Craig and I should be back together, and I look forward to that a lot. And I know you guys do too. But today, yes, today, I have a very, very special guest for you, where it's going to be our job, that's right, two of us, to share with you the mindset, skills, tactics, and gear you need to survive almost anything so that you leave out of here today better prepared at the end than you are right now at the beginning of the show. And so I know you guys are all wondering, who is this very, very special guest? Well, he is none other than Mr. Dave Canterbury. But before I bring Dave in here, I want to thank our sponsor, The Sportsman's Guide. Back in the day, I used to get their catalogs, but I kind of lost track of them. And once we reconnected, I was blown away by their website. I was just looking at a great deal on their homepage for U.S military surplus boots from Bates, and a special deal on a highly rated Anderson AR-15 at under 440 bucks. That's actually really good. And yes, for you guys that don't live in the USA, law-abiding citizens here can buy cool firearms online and on the Sportsman's Guide. Plus, the site is just fresh and a fun place to go and check out some cool stuff. So you can go check out the Sportsman's Guide using the link in this podcast description, or better yet, go to www.thesurvivalshow.com forward slash guide. And please use our link to get over there because this creates a win-win situation for all of us. And you know how Craig and I love win-win situations. You get to see some cool new camping, hunting, and outdoor gear, clothing, and even patio furniture. They have a lot of stuff over there. And when you go to thesurvivalshow.com forward slash guide, you'll be redirected over to the Sportsman's Guide. And using this link, will let them know that we sent you, and that's really important. And this will make them want to continue to sponsor this podcast so we can bring you great content and Great guests like Dave Canterbury, Les Stroud, Matt Graham, Creek Stewart, and more forever and ever. So go to www.thesurvivalshow.com forward slash guide to check out the Sportsman's Guide now. So guys, I have really missed you, and I want to just thank you for being here today. Now, I'm excited to let you in on this very entertaining, educational, and uh, kind of a behind-the-scenes, authentic, close-up, and personal look that I had with Mr. Dave Canterbury, who probably needs no introduction, but if you're not familiar with who Dave is, he's the best-selling author of Bushcraft 101. 
and he's got several other great books. Dave is also one of the earliest pioneers in posting outdoor skills videos to YouTube. He's hosted several shows on the Discovery Channel and on uh, the National Geographic Channel. And Dave is the owner and founder of Self-Reliance Outfitters and the Pathfinder School. And he just does a lot of stuff. So let's get into this interview with Dave Canterbury. Hey guys, so I have a special guest today, Dave Canterbury. Dave, thanks for being with me, no man. No problem, brother, no problem. Yeah, I am really excited about your YouTube channel is what, Self-Reliance Outfitters? Yeah, the YouTube channel, you can just type my name in, Dave Canterbury, and it'll okay. come up. You can type in Wilderness Outfitters, and it'll come up, or you I mean, can type in Self-Reliance Outfitters, You've got like 15,000 videos. So. Yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> You'll find me on YouTube easy enough, for sure, if you're really looking. Spent some time. You've done some TV things. We'll talk about that. Uh, dual survival. Now, I mean, it's not new, but... You keep coming out. I think you're on your third book or fourth book. I want to say fifth. Fifth book. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a couple bestsellers in there. We'll talk yeah. a little bit about yeah. those. And uh, and basically, you were raised by wolves, right? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> if, you're, if you're selling it, I'm buying it. All right, man. So you ready to get in this? We'll sure. Talk let's about do it. Man. Okay. So, Dave. What I like to do is I like to get into uh, people's training, pedigree, but I'd like to step back even further because, you know, there's a formation process we all go through even as children. So can you kind of step us back, tell us your background a little bit, whatever you're comfortable with, and then step into how you ended up starting and getting into doing what you're doing now? Well, you know, I mean, I grew up in a rural area, mm -hmm. and my parents were divorced. I kind of had the best of both worlds when it comes to the outdoors because my, my blood father was kind of one of those adrenaline junkies. He was, okay. a, he was a dive instructor and he flew hang gliders before hang gliding was cool. Mm -hmm. um, at the lake, you know, every weekend in the summer, fishing, boating, camping, hanging out. And then my stepfather was a woodsman. Hmm. You know, he was the mushroom hunting, deer hunting, rabbit hunting, really? waterfowl okay. hunting guy. So I kind of had the best of both worlds growing up in that outdoor spectrum. Mm -hmm. So I got my taste of camping, I got my taste of hunting, trapping, fishing, all that good stuff at a very young age. Then, uh, you know, I went into the military early. I signed up when I was 17. Okay. Um, probably because of grades in school more than anything else. <laughs> I knew I was gonna, never going to amount to anything in college. But, uh, and I, I did my stint in the military. And then when I got out, I was, you know, I think when a lot of people get out of the military, no matter what they do in the military, they're kind of lost. It's kind of a space where you have that transition point where you're like, man, I miss all my buddies and I miss that Army family. And now what am I going to do? And how do my skills that I learned here transfer into well, the business world? I, I had that kind of easy because I was military police. So oh, okay. it was easy enough to transfer into law enforcement if I wanted to do that. And I actually did some private security work for a while down in Florida. Mm -hmm. But I, I enjoyed the outdoors so much that I really kind of, and I thought about being a game warden. I mean, I thought about doing a lot of things that were outdoor related with law enforcement mm -hmm. at the same time, but none of it really stuck. You know what I mean? And so I did lots and lots of stuff, construction work, lumberyard work. I actually worked as a, in a wildlife, as I ran the wildlife unit for an animal control agency down okay. in Florida for a few years, which got me outside working with animals, doing things like that. But it all kind of transitioned because of an illness within my family that I moved away from all that and back up north here to Indiana, Ohio area. And I started working in factories because that was the the work that was available. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of missed that outdoor experience again, and I got into 18th century. about how century. old were you there? Oh, that was in the 90s. Okay. So I got out of the military in 88, so okay. this was in the 90s. And I transitioned into that uh, traditional 18th century reenacting and traditional archery. Okay. And that's really kind of what drove me into the bushcraft 
era of things because and really formed a lot of my mentality that I stick with even today because the guys of the 18th century who, you know, when you're reenacting that and you're going out on treks into the Daniel Boone National Forest, the Hoosier National Forest, you're taking very few items with you because everything has to be period specific. Right, right. Right? So it's that doing more with less mm-hmm. on steroids because that's exactly what they did mm-hmm. before it was cool. What we called survival. Right. Our great-great-grandparents did. Every that day. was just every day, right? Exactly. Yeah. So once I started doing that, that kind of transitioned into other things, traditional archery. Um, and then I was a hunting guide for a while. And then I started doing some things just on the side. And it, the, the funny story is that the YouTube, you know, you were mentioning my YouTube channel early on. I was on YouTube in 2007, I think. And it was probably three or four channels on there at the most that did. I, I mean, that was right at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Um, Hopex, you remember that guy, Hopex, out of Sweden? He was one of the only guys I remember that I ever watched his videos. But anyway, so I was in our kitchen, unhappily un, to my wife, and I was napping glass arrowheads. And my brother-in-law walked in, and he's like, man, you should put that stuff on YouTube. And I was like, what is YouTube? I had no clue what it even was. And he's like, well, you should put some videos of what you're doing now, shoot them and put them on YouTube. And so I started doing it that way, and that just kind of ballooned. At that point, there was nobody doing it, so it was like, well, can you show this? Can you show this? Can you show this? Can you show this? And I, then I started teaching because I had guys that were seeing these videos, and they were saying, hey, can I come and learn that from you? Can I come and learn oh, that from you? Oh, that's how it started. And okay. that's how everything kind of ballooned and mushroomed into what it is, was just from that simple, you know, here I am napping some glass arrowheads in my kitchen mm-hmm. on video, mm-hmm. making some shelters in the woods with tarps and poles in the woods, mm-hmm. you know, hunting with a bow in the woods too. Bushcraft and survival. And so the longer you do this, the more you learn. You know, and I, I've always had this motto of let's learn together. And I think that I've learned as much from the people who watch my videos as they ever learned mm-hmm. from watching my videos. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the history yeah. behind it all. You know, yeah. it really is. And from those YouTube videos sprung the, the, the way it is now, you know, People that are on YouTube now get calls from production companies every day. Hey, we're going to shoot a new survival show. We're looking for all these experts. Right, right. And if you've got a YouTube video, you must be an expert. That's nothing new. That's what happened to me in 2008. Mm-hmm. You know, they, Discovery Channel called me and said, hey, I would you like to drive for this survival show? You know, we watched you on YouTube. <laughs> so it's no different now than it was back then. It's just right. on a grander scale. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, that's really interesting. So stepping back to the learning, learning together thing, I mean, that... It's a posture of humility too, right? Sure. So I don't know everything. Can you just can you just tell me? Uh, you know, just tap back into that and um, you know go with that a little bit. Like how, how did that how did that affect maybe what you ended up showing people? What, sure. What um, you know how that commentary back and everything helped you to grow as a person? You know, for me, obviously, YouTube is a great platform because people can comment on your videos mm-hmm. and there's that's a double-edged sword obviously because they can it say is. whatever they want from behind the right. keyboard and you don't know who they are <laughs> right. but in the beginning when youtube was fresh and youtube was new and it was survival and bushcraft were new to youtube you would get people that were watching youtube videos that had been doing what we call now bushcraft and survival their entire lives mm-hmm. and when they saw you doing that they got excited about it and they would send you private messages and send you emails and say, hey, you know, if you do it this way, you do it that way, it might be better. Or, hey, you know, an idea for a video would be, I did this when I was a kid. I don't know if you ever tried this or not, but it's really cool. Or mm-hmm. my granddad taught me this skill or that skill, and a lot of people don't know that anymore. And 
coupling that with that 18th century reenacting background and the research that I had done to be able to do that reenacting, I fell in love with all of these old traditional skills. Gotcha. And I noticed that, you know, they were gone. You know, I mean, I noticed in my own kids that they wanted to be on a computer. They wanted to be on the Game Boy. They wanted to be on the Nintendo, showing right. my age here. They wanted to be on the older game systems, and they didn't want to be outside anymore. They didn't want to camp. They didn't want to use a knife. They didn't want to use an ax. They didn't want to hunt. They didn't want to fish. Mm -hmm. And so I finally, I gradually got them into some of that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that that was really my passion for a long period, and still is today, to kids are really, I don't do as much with kids as I'd like to sometimes probably, but my passion really is to pass on those more old-time skills, those frontier pioneer-type skills mm -hmm. to a new generation. Mm -hmm. Whether that's, you know, they're 20 right now and don't know, or they're 10 right now and right. don't know. So what, what of those primitive or lost skills uh, were you most passionate about? What, what things did you really feel would, like, even help a, another generation get excited about the woods? I think just the self-reliance aspect of being able to go into a dark space surrounded by noise you're not familiar with. Mm -hmm in a shelter that's not your bedroom with covers and a roof over your head and I can close the screen and not hear the sounds outside, that gives you a self-confidence level that carries over into not being in the woods. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important. It also, when you realize that you can build fire, you can make shelter, you can actually find or forage your own food, mm -hmm. those type things give you a self-reliant mindset and a confidence level that goes way beyond what you can get behind a video game mm -hmm. or at school or anything else because those skills are what make you believe that you could live through anything if you had to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's a storm tomorrow, I'm going to be okay. If I get lost in the woods tomorrow, I'm going to be okay. If my ATV runs out of gas, I'm going to be okay. If I'm on vacation and I get lost, I'm going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. Let's talk about mindset a little bit. So there's several different ways to strengthen your mindset. Uh, negative things, especially if you're in a survival or a crisis situation, can, can really hit you, right? Yep. So maybe do you have some tips or, or tactics, some things that people can use to develop a mindset? And how important, maybe even start there, how important is mindset to survival, success in life, all those sorts of things? You know, mindset when it comes to survival is really one of the first things that we cover in our basic class. And one of the key concepts that I try to get people to understand is that in this day and age, Everybody thinks that if you have to spend the night in the woods and you didn't plan on it, mm -hmm. it's survival. Mm -hmm. If I don't have a match to light the next fire, it's survival. What I tell people in my classes is that 99% of the scenarios that you could think of that people every day call survival is nothing more than inconvenient camping. Mm -hmm. I didn't plan to be here tonight, but I got to deal with it. Become comfortable being uncomfortable. Get your mindset to the fact that it's not that difficult as long as I stay on task. If I understand rudimentary skills of building shelter, making fire, disinfecting groundwater resources, signaling for rescue and navigation, mm -hmm. it's not rocket science. And once I understand those things and I can put them in some semblance of order in a checklist in my mind of, okay, I'm lost, I'm stranded, I sprained my ankle, what's next? Mm -hmm. What is my first task I need to accomplish, then what's the next one, and the next one, and the next one. I think when you keep your mind busy thinking about those things, it helps you to forget about the oh crap scenario of, right. you know, now I'm in it. Right, right. 
And I think that mindset's important. So let's talk about priorities and priorities sure. of survival. Um, yeah, let, let, get me started. Now. Well, you know, because there's so many different ideas out yeah. there about what's the most important thing. Is there is there a checklist that we just go down yeah. through? Is there something else that we need to consider? Okay. I would like to hear your perspective on this. Okay, go um, ahead, get started. I'll segue right back to my basic survival class. Okay, because it's one of the first things that we cover in that class of survival priorities. Mm-hmm. And I think that the biggest screwed up survival priority that I hear nowadays is. You know, you get the typical list of fire, shelter, water, signal for rescue, right. food, food, blah, blah, blah. Right, right. Yeah. Self-aid's got to be number one. Number one all the time is self-aid. Mm-hmm. If you can't operate, if you're not mobile, if you're bleeding, right. that's got to be your first priority. Mm-hmm. So the number one on the list is Great. always self-aid above anything else. Yep. Everything else after that really is environmentally dictated or situationally dictated. Yep. It's, there's no set list. Obviously, you need water. Obviously, you need either shelter or fire or a combination of the two, depending on your scenario. Mm-hmm. Did I just fall out of a canoe in 40 degree water, or is there a storm coming in? Are my clothes wet or are my clothes dry? All of those things dictate what type of shelter I'm going to build, what type of fire I'm going to build. Do I need a fire? Do I need a shelter? Which one's a priority? Because fire may be a priority first if my clothes are soaking wet, because right. squirreling myself up into a pile of leaves isn't going to do me a whole lot of good right. to get my body warm, unless I'm wearing wool and I can trap some body heat, but the fire is more important at that point. Mm-hmm. I'm going to expend energy making that fire that's going to warm my body up through burning calories. Yep. Then when I get that fire, I can dry my clothes out. Then my shelter's a priority. So there's really no set list beyond self-aid. Self-aid has to be number one. And then in the long run, for the short term, hydration and body core temperature control have to be, which is go hand in hand, mm-hmm. have to be your priorities. So when I give people this list of priorities, it, there's always a, you know, take this with a grain of salt because, you know, in my mind, it's self-aid, fire, shelter, water, signal for rescue or navigation. Food doesn't even come into the equation unless you're gonna be there for more than three days. And for an emergency scenario, you shouldn't be there more than three or four days, provided you left a decent game plan and didn't just walk out of the house and right. tell anybody so where you're going. So self, there's self-prep, let's talk about self-preparation before sure. you even do anything then. Yeah, I mean, that's talk obviously that. that's the beginning of the game. You know, you're getting ready to go out in the woods, whether it's for a day, two days, a hunting trip, whatever it is, you're gonna tell somebody where you're going, what you're driving, what your license plate number is, even down to what type or brand of boots I'm wearing, because when trackers come out to look for you, if you've become lost or separated from your vehicle, they can be identify a pair of Danner boots from a pair of Vibram soles from a right. pair of right. you know Nikes. Um, so all of those things become important. When am I coming back? What routes am I going to take? What stops do I plan on making? When do I plan to be back? Um, you know, any weather changes that could happen in the interim that are already in place. You know, hey, it's supposed to snow two inches tonight, but I'm going out anyway. It might snow a foot, who knows? I might be delayed coming back by a day. Mm-hmm. If somebody knows that, they might not panic. Most of the time, if you get lost or stranded and you haven't told anybody where you're going, you don't come home for dinner and somebody calls a law, they're gonna say, sorry about your luck, he could be on a bender, call me back in 24, 48 hours, right. anyway. Yep. Then they've got to get a rescue team together if there's one even available. Then they've got to come look for you. So, I mean, you've got to plan for that three- to four-day period. But pre-planning, making sure that you never go to the woods without certain emergency items, making sure that you have the skills to keep yourself alive and affect self-aid. Navigation is probably the most underrated skill on the planet, as far as I'm concerned, Mm -hmm. um, next to shelter building. Because there are two things that can save your life very quickly next to self-aid that most people don't practice enough, in mm-hmm. my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no sense of sitting beside a tree 
and waiting for somebody to rescue you three days from now if a main road's 5K away and I can walk there in an hour, mm -hmm. if I can walk a straight line. And if you know it's there. And I know it's there. Right. So, you know, navigation and situational awareness kind of go hand in hand. And those are the kind of mentality things and the mindset things that change that survival situation into inconvenient camping. Mm -hmm. yep. And so those are the things we hammer home at our basic level classes. That's really good. So I, I'm, when I started getting into this and honing my skills, the first thing that happened in my mind and my heart was, this is so complicated, right? There's just so much to this. I, I don't think I could ever be prepared. So what do, you, what do you speak to that and also speak to if somebody's just kind of getting into this or they have some skill and they've been away from it for a while, what would be some maybe action steps, some simple things? Like what would be the most important one or two or three things that, that people could start to learn, start to develop some skill in and, uh, and go from there? I think in, in today's bushcraft and survival community, we tend to look at things backwards a lot of times when we go to learn things. Everybody wants the romanticism of primitive skills, but primitive skills should be the last thing you have to rely on. Mm -hmm. So understanding the basic level kit that you're carrying and how to most logically and effectively use that kit is much more important than learning how to make fire with sticks mm -hmm. because the chances of you being naked and afraid are almost zero. Right. You're going to have a big lighter in your pocket. Yeah, carry you're going to have a ferro rod on your knife. Right. You know, you're going to have a tarp in your backpack. Learn how to use those type items the most effective you can. And as far as learning skills go, you know, again, I think you're right. When I first started in this, I always saw schools charging inordinate amounts, amounts of money to learn these skills. Mm -hmm. Everyone that you talk to, it's very similar to the old skills like trapping. If you talk to an old trapper, they always acted like it was rocket science. They always acted like it was a secret skill that nobody was going to know and they were going to take it to the grave. And that's kind of the way survival and bushcraft was when I first started. And I think if you take any skill set you want to learn, whether it's survival, whether it's bushcraft, whether it's geometry, whether it is driving a car or making your bed, it's a series of steps. You break it down into inputs mm -hmm. that affect an outcome. You eliminate the variation within the inputs, and the outcome is going to be the same every single time. It's a mm -hmm. simple engineering mentality. I think that's probably an advantage that I had in this business a lot of times was because I came from an engineering background. Like okay. I told you, I worked in the automotive industry mm -hmm. in the 90s when I moved back up here north, and I was an engineer. So I was very good at breaking things down into inputs and looking for variation within the inputs. Mm -hmm. And once you break things down to that simple sixth grade level, right. anybody can understand it. And right. that's, that was always my goal with teaching people was, how do I break this down to where it is so simple you can't not understand it? Right. And then when you practice a skill, the next thing I tell people is, do it till you can't do it wrong. Don't just go to a school and learn something or go watch a video or read a book. Mm -hmm. Go out and practice that skill and put the dirt time in until you do it automatic, mm -hmm. till you can tie knots blindfolded, till you can tie knots behind your back, till you can put that shelter up in the dark without a headlamp, take it down without a headlamp, pack your pack without a headlamp, mm -hmm. dump your pack on the ground and know everything that's there that was in your pack and every place it goes back into with no headlight on. When you can do those type things, that's when you've got something. And those skills are so easy to practice. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be complicated. Right. You just break it down into simplicity. You don't even have to go out in the woods and do those skills. You know, you can do them in your backyard. Right. You know, and most people don't realize that that's probably the best place to practice 
90% of these skills in your right. backyard where you're not forced into ugliness right. if something happens. You know, if you sleep yep. in a hammock in your backyard and you've got your 30-degree undercoat and all of a sudden it's 20 degrees and you've got the cold butt syndrome going on, Just go you don't have bed. to suffer through it anymore. That's you right. can go in the house. That's right. Right? Then go buy a better undercoat and try it again <laughs> until you get things right. Yeah. You know, practice starting fires in your backyard so that when you have to do it, it's muscle memory. It's automatic. Yep. You've been on TV several times. Yep. I mean, you've done a lot. You've actually done a wide body. It wasn't just dual, dual survival. No, I've done three television shows. Yeah. Actually, yeah. So can you can you just step us? I know there's some. Uh, there's a lot of opinions about survival TV. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to open this up to you and say, share whatever you want about survival TV, okay. your experiences, maybe some lessons that you've learned, and how they brought you to the point where you're okay. at now. You know, I think that survival television in general, people need to realize that when they watch television. It's entertainment, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that that's the core value or the core element that any production company tries to get from a television show sure. is the entertainment value. They got to keep eyes on so they can sell commercials. Exactly. It's about and line. if you take thirty minutes to show somebody how to start a bow drill fire, they're somewhere else. Right. They're not watching that. Right. So where you see things on TV happen where somebody starts spinning a bow drill and 10 seconds later is a coal and two <laughs> seconds later is a fire, that may have taken 45 minutes to film Or that, longer. But most of it was on the cutting room floor. That's right, yeah. So it's not like they're trying to BS anybody with that. It probably really happened. It just happened a lot slower than you see it on TV. Right. Now, you also have to realize that when it comes to survival television or any television show, I mean, shooting a television show is not an inexpensive Aspect, process. Mm-hmm. It's, it's expensive. So when they want certain action items to happen, it's not an accident. <laughs> going to make right. sure it happens right. when it's ready to happen. You understand what I'm yep. saying? And, I, and, and that's not to say that survival television is fake, because it's not. <laughs> I can promise you that, you know, a live alligator, whether he was there when you got there or not, is not not a live alligator. No I mean, there's, there's no getting around that. You, know, you don't tame alligators. It's right. not, you don't tame cobras. It doesn't work that way. So there's lots of things on, you know, on survival television that we see that we're like, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. That might have been set up. It's possible, but that doesn't mean it wasn't real either at the same time. Gotcha. So you kind of have to take those things with a grain of salt and understand that survival television, in the end, is television. Mm-hmm. It's entertainment. That's what it's for. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you hear a lot of people say things like, well, that guy does this crazy and that crowd never do that. It's entertainment. If you learn something from it or you had some takeaway from it, mm-hmm. that's a bonus because mm-hmm. that's not really why they made the television show. Mm-hmm. They didn't make it to educate you. They made it to entertain you. Yep. The education value is 10% of the equation. Mm-hmm. So, that's kind of just a, a, an experience thing. But, you know, I did dual survival. I did Dirty Rotten Survival on National Geographic. I did a season of Pathfinder Outdoor Journal on the Hunt Channel. I'm actually working on something else as we speak. But one of the lessons that I learned from television is if you don't own it and you don't have creative control over it, mm-hmm. everything can be what you don't want it to be very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Okay? And so you have to make sure that if it's something that you're passionate about, that you have the proper input into that. And I think that was my biggest lesson takeaway from television in general was, is that if I'm ever gonna do television again, number one, it's gonna be something that I wanna do. Mm-hmm. Number two, is gonna be something I have complete creative control over. Yep. And number three, is gonna be something that I own the rights to, so I can't be paid for it once and it's still playing 10 years later, right. and I'm making nothing. Yep. Because your work is worth something. It's just like YouTube or writing a book, or putting out a DVD, every time one gets sold, every time one gets read, every time one gets watched, 
you should get something for your time and energy that you put into that because after all that's why you know that's why you're doing what you're doing you're right. you're doing it because you love being in the outdoors right. but you can't love being in the outdoors and not raise a family that's right you can't love being outside and not and have pay money to pay, to the, pay bills. the bills right so I hear a lot of guys talk about, you know, well, you're advertising this product, so you're selling out, or you're wearing this camouflage because they're paying you to wear it. They're paying for my car. They're putting food <laughs> in my kid's mouth. Did you just want me to sit out here and eat rabbits and let my kids starve at the house? Right. Is that what you wanted to happen? Right, right. So, you know, while it's everything is relative, you have to understand that also everything is business, mm -hmm. and that includes television. Mm -hmm. Television is a business. And they have to make money. And to make money, they have to sell advertising. Right. To sell advertising, they have to entertain you. Right. It's that simple. Yep. No different. That's, that's actually a really, that's a really good summary of, of business in general, too. I mean, we're okay to pay people for their time for other sorts of things. But there's just, like, even, for instance, on YouTube, um, there's a lot more people coming out with sponsorships. Uh, people don't understand that it, it can take... I mean, my videos take 30, sometimes 40 hours to produce out. Somebody's got to do it. If it's not me, then I have to pay somebody to do it. Right. So it's got to be worth my time because I can't. If, if you like Dave's videos, if you like my videos, if you like our content, if you like the podcast, somebody's got to pay for that. Right. It doesn't just happen for nothing. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about your books. Sure. Want to talk about the books? Yep. So you kind of made a turn a couple of years ago. I mean, I mean not necessarily a turn, but you added some now uh, New York Times best-selling book items. Yeah. You know, here's here's what the books are for me. You know, I, I think that, like I said, my goal was always the let's learn together and the teaching and the bringing these skills back into the younger generation. Right. And in my legacy. mind, legacy there. Like that's exactly the word that I was going to use. Legacy. Yep. Okay. Sorry. You know, in, <laughs> no, no, that's fine. You beat me to the punch. I love it. That means we think alike. That's a good thing. Um, the the bottom line is books are forever. You know, that internet can crash tomorrow. Yep. That book's not going to set itself on fire. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, you know, there's, I read books to this day that were written in the 1800s that are original copies of books from the 1800s. Mm -hmm. You know, H.G. Uh, Gibson's book on trapping and trapping tricks, mm -hmm. 1889. I have an original copy of it. I read it. So yep. I'm still reading books that are 100 years old or more. I want people reading my books 100 years from now mm -hmm. when the internet may not even exist anymore. Yep. No the jokes. Will. My wife's here too, and okay. uh, she's over there smiling. We probably, I don't know how many thousands of books we have in our house, but she collects books. I mean, usually it's got to be a vintage before 1900. Right. So I think if the Library of Con Congress ever sunk into the, you know, the bowels of the earth, we would probably be able to restore society and You'd literature good, huh? from her collection. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, <laughs> I think that books are underrated nowadays. Yeah. I, really, I mean, it, it really baffles my mind, you know, when I see things like my niece who's in high school and they don't even have books anymore. Mm -hmm. She has yep. a laptop. Yep. You know, or a, a pad, whatever you call a tablet, whatever yep. they call those newfangled things you're using. <laughs> um, that's what she takes to school. That's what she does her homework on. That's what she does her research on. Yeah. She doesn't have a book, you know, and there's just something, there's a romance to opening up a, a book and holding it in your hand mm -hmm. that you can't get from the internet. Yep. You just can't. You can't get it any other way. And so for me, writing the books was a big passion of mine. Mm -hmm. When Bushcraft 101 became a New York Times bestseller, I was shocked because I didn't think that a book of that nature of that in that genre could ever hit the New York Times bestseller list. Mm -hmm. When it hit the New York Times bestseller list the second time, mm -hmm. in a different 
It hit once in travel and once in camping. And when it did that, I was double shocked. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is not real. And so the publishing company, obviously, when you have a, sell, a book that sells like that, they're after you for more. Sorry, right. you know, they right. want more. So now it's become a, a, a repetitive thing of every year, they want another book. Mm -hmm. And so my book that's coming out in a couple months is kind of a culmination book because I tried to figure out, and it was really my wife's idea. Well, you know, do you get your ideas from your wife too? Uh, Does she, she take credit for all she, your good ideas? She's, she's got some good ideas. Yeah, yeah, my wife always has the best <laughs> ideas. But anyway, you know, she, she told me a long time ago, she said, Dave, one of the biggest complaints with Bushcraft 101 always was not enough illustrations. Mm -hmm. And I complained about it with the publisher when I first wrote the book, but they were like, you know, illustrations cost money because somebody has to draw them. They take up space in the book where there's not words. We'd rather have the 40,000 words and less illustrations. Yeah, but a picture is worth a thousand words exactly. more, especially so anyway, illustrations. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. what happened nice. was, you know, Iris is always like, you just need to make a book with drawings in it. You need to make a book of illustrations. You need to make a book of illustrations. And I did Bushcraft 101. I did Advanced Bushcraft. I did the book of Chopping, Hunting, and Gathering in the Wild. I did Bushcraft First Aid. And when I was getting ready, they asked me about another book. They asked me to write a book on boreal bushcraft, and I, and I refused. On what bushcraft? Boreal bushcraft. Okay. And I refused to write that book because I didn't feel my knowledge level was where it should be. And I told them the only way I would do a book like that was with a co-author. Okay. So I was going to get Johann Skullman. Who so so explain that to book. people if they're not familiar with what that is. So boreal bushcraft means northern bushcraft. Okay. Bushcraft in the northern I'm climates. Because I'm, I'm going to be, you know... You're being authentic and real. I didn't know what that was. And that's fine. Okay. You know, a good example, that's Morskansky's book, Bushcraft. Okay. Okay? Okay, Morskansky's book is really based on boreal bushcraft. All the trees, the plants he talks about in that book, all the mentality of cold weather survival, okay. that's a boreal bushcraft mentality. Okay. I don't need a super shelter in Ohio. Right. It's never going to be below minus 5. The thing would just give me pneumonia. Gotcha. Right? But when it's minus 25... There's a big difference. So that's a northern, that's northern, a northern, northern thing. bushcraft. Yeah. Okay. And so more northern severe climate is the boreal bushcraft. More right. of a se severe climate. Bush. And okay. my publisher had a request from a Canadian outlet okay. for me to write a boreal bushcraft book, and I said, mm -hmm. no, I can't do that because it's not my area of expertise. Okay. You know, I'm an eastern woodland, southern swamp kind of guy. Yep. You want me to write a book about the Florida swamps? I'll do it tomorrow. You want me to write a book about the eastern woodlands? I'll do it tomorrow. So I had made arrangements with Johann Skullman, who is another. More ambassador who is a an, an ex-military guy who did a lot of research for the military in Sweden. He's retired from the military, mm -hmm. and he's a very knowledgeable guy. He actually wrote the book The Winter Soldier okay. for the Swedish military, still used to this day. So I knew he already had all this content. I was going to have him partner with me to write that book. In the interim of all this going on, my wife's like, illustrated book, illustrated book, illustrated book. <laughs> and so I fought with her enough until it was like, if you're not going to get away without making this phone call to Brandon and saying, how about an illustrated book? So I called my publisher. I said, how about a book of nothing but illustrations? And he's like, we love it. We love it. Let's do it. Let's do it. And so I had to hear the I told you so for the next three months while we got the book done. But what we did was we took a culmination of all the other books, all the things that were missing illustrations, and now we're making, now the book that's coming out is called The Illustrated Encyclopedia of Bushcraft. Okay. And so what they nice. decided to do with that was instead of making it a pocket type book, it's an 8 by 10 hardcover book. Nice. That's going to have almost 500 illustrations in it. That's cool. And it's got like 15, 20,000 words to go with the te text to go with the illustrations. Yep. But in my mind, it was going to be something, it, and it should turn out this way. I've looked at it already, and I know it looks good. If you look at a lot of books with illustrations in them, you pick up any survival manual that talks about the Bodril fire. Mm -hmm. And I did notice when I, I'm going to plug you, I looked at your pocket 
survival, survival guide. guide? Okay. I looked at it in, in, in my room the other night very closely because I wanted to see what your illustrations looked like, how good they were. Because one of the things that has driven me crazy about illustrated bushcraft concepts is the Baudrill fire. Mm -hmm. I've made hundreds of Baudrill fires. Mm -hmm. And it's more complicated than stick a stick in this hole and turn it. <laughs> right. Okay. Right, right. You have to know what the notch is supposed to look like from the upper side, from the front, from the back. You have to understand the notch needs to be filled with material before you heat it up. Mm -hmm. That's how you create the ember. You have to understand how far that notch is supposed to be back on the board, how big the spindle should be, depending on the type of wood you're using, how long the bow should be to get the maximum amount of revolutions per stroke. All of those things are missing out of every book that's copied off of the 21-76. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to make sure I had at least 15 or 20 illustrations of how to make a bow drill fire. Yep. And so that was one of the first things I looked at with your guide was how did he describe the Baudrill fire. Okay. And there were at least six, eight good illustrations. There's eight there. illustrations yeah. in there. Not a whole lot of words because of space. But it's not. It's better than I've seen in most survival manuals. But, and yeah. it goes in your pocket. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's important to understand, too. And, we, and also we refer people right there at the beginning of that first line, basically saying you're not going to make a Baudrill fire unless you do this beforehand. Right. Go check out the video. So... Yeah, but thank you, thank you. For no, I think that. it's really, I think it's a really good product, and I think it's got a place in the market. I think anytime you can carry something that doesn't take up a lot of space or weight, mm -hmm. that gives you a reminder. I mean, the survival scenario, an actual survival scenario, is going to be a very stressful time. Right. And it's going to be very easy for you to forget things. Mm -hmm. Even if you've got things pounded into muscle memory of how to make a shelter, how to do this, how to do this, what happens if, you know, you didn't learn enough about plants. You right. didn't learn enough about signaling for rescue. You didn't right. learn enough about making a Baudrill fire, and now you're forced to do it. Right. Well, if you've got something that you can look at as a reminder, it's better than nothing. Right. You know, and I think it's important to have that. Um, and I think your guide does a very good job of that. Thank you. Thank in you a lot so of ways. Much. I want to thank you. It was a good segue because I, I, I've written millions and millions of words of content, but always short. You know blogs, videos, sure. those sort of marketing materials before I ever did any of this stuff, right? Then I sat down to write, my, write this guide. I thought it was going to take me, you know, had the outline pretty much fleshed out. I thought it was going to take me maybe a month, right? It took me four months of measuring every word. It took discipline. I basically did nothing on YouTube for six months. Um, I think there's a discipline to writing, and this is what I'm getting at. I'm curious, and I think this is transfer transferable to other things be, but what is your discipline for writing you're you're on your what fifth book now fifth book, yeah. you've written i think you're, you're clocking actually over. sixth if you talk about my very first book okay that was self-published it's actually six okay so right now you're on a, a path of like a book a year and that's a lot right. that's a lot tell me a little bit about your your disciplines there how that can transfer to other people too and what they can learn from that what I generally do when it comes to books is I try to figure out when it, when's going to be my most apt downtime. Okay. So what I do is, because my travel schedule is very heavy throughout the spring, summer, and fall, and I know that personally, selfishly, I went on a trap line in the winter and I want to hunt in the winter, mm -hmm. that's usually the times that I pick to not hold classes or not travel overseas. Gotcha. And so those are my selfish times that I pick for writing. And I set aside three months if I can to dedicate to writing a book. Okay. 
And then I try to give myself goals of... Solid, like yeah. a three-month block solid. Right. No distractions, that's what you're going to Well, there's, well gonna be, there's, there's always going to be distractions. But yeah, yeah, nothing planned majorly that's yep. going to keep me away gotcha. for more than a couple of days yep. out of that three months. Um, and then I try to set myself up with many goals. Mm -hmm. You know, okay, I want to get chapter one, the forward, and the dedication done in the first two weeks. Okay. You know, in the next two weeks, I want to get chapter two done and have the outline for chapter three. The next two weeks, I want to get chapter three done and chapter four. And so I kind of set myself up for goals like that. And when I get behind, then I sacrifice personal things. You know, I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> instead of going out and playing in the woods today, right. you know, or setting a few, three or four extra traps today, I'm going to have to get on the line, get it done, get back, because i got to buckle down and have right. a couple extra hours today, yep. you know. Gotcha. So, that, but that mindset transfers over directly to everything else in life, because if you don't set goals for yourself, and you don't see them to fruition, mm -hmm. then you don't have anything. And you know, I think a lot of people nowadays, you know, I, I'll be the first one to admit I've made a thousand I've made 10,000 mistakes in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. You know, in personal life, in bushcraft, in business, I've made 10,000 mistakes. But if you look back on what you did or what you should have done, mm -hmm. you'll never get anywhere. Mm -hmm. You always have to look forward because every step you take forward gets you closer to the end goal. Every time you stop to turn around and see what's coming behind you or what you did wrong just slows you down. Mm -hmm. So that mindset of always going forward, never looking back, you know, you admit to the mistakes that you made and you don't make them again. And you just move forward and you move forward and you move forward. And that's really what's got me to where I'm at today. You know, there's a lot of luck involved. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, being at the right place at the right time involved in that. So it's just like, you know, pulling one of these one-armed bandits down here winning $10,000. You just happen to walk up to the machine that somebody that went on five minutes ago and you hit it. Sometimes you get that happens, but that only happens because you place yourself in that position. Yep. Okay. And because you actually pulled the arm. Because you actually pulled the arm. <laughs> you put the money in. You pulled the arm. You won yep. ten thousand bucks. Yeah, it was. We're not, not advocating gambling. But, but no, I'm not. It's a principle. I think that people just need to realize that mistakes are something everyone makes. Mm -hmm. I think that you know, looking back and dwelling on errors that you make aren't going to fix the problem. They're not going to make the problem better. And it's no different in life than it is in bushcraft. You're going to fail 500 bushcraft fires mm -hmm. before you get comfortable making one on the drop of a dime. Mm -hmm. yep. You're going to fail many, Just many, many times. Just know that that's okay. And that it's okay. Yeah. But learn something from it. Right. Understand, try to understand why you failed. Well, I failed this time because I had too much moisture in the material. Yep. I failed this time because my notch was too small and it suffocated the coal. Yep. I failed this time because I didn't have enough aeration you know, to feed the ember. I failed this time because I had too much downward pressure, and so I burnt the material before I could build up any dust. Mm -hmm. There's so many input variables in that you can learn from that those 500 mistakes yep. teach you so much. And for me, I'm thankful for the mistakes that I've made because they brought me to where I'm at today. Mm -hmm. And the mistakes that I don't have to make anymore make me very happy because now I can look forward and say, I've already made them 10,000 mistakes. I'm not gonna make those anymore. Yep. How many more are ahead of me? Yep. That's the question. Let's just take a minute and talk about ego and humility. Uh, the detriments of ego, how that can affect you in a survival situation, life, and then um, how humility plays into character and all that sort of stuff. You know, I think everybody, including myself, is guilty of ego. To some extent, mm -hmm. especially in the bushcraft and survival world, it's, uh, it's, it's very relevant, whether it's in the tactical field, whether it's in survival in general, whether it's in bushcraft. Most of the, and we, we thankfully, mm 
we have a lot of women entering this genre now because it didn't used to be that way. Now we have a lot of that going on. But for the good old American male, most of us in this business are alpha males. And so I'm going to pee on your tree no matter what it takes to get that done. And I'm guilty of that just as bad as the next guy is. But at the same time, you have to put yourself in the position of helping everyone around you because that's what community is. And generally, everything is circular. And I can, be, I can think that I'm the best. I can think that you know nobody's going to be as good at A, B, or C as I am. Nobody's going to have a best-selling book that sells more copies than mine. Whatever the case may be, that's fine and dandy, but I still have to have the humility to understand if this guy says, hey, Dave, I want to write a bushcraft book, what, should I, what, should I, what topic should I cover in there? What mistakes did you make when you were writing yours, or what do you wish you'd have done different? I have to have enough humility to go back and look at that and say, hey, man, this is what you need to do, and not be afraid right. that that guy's book is going to outsell my book, right. or it's going to be better, or that guy's business, or that guy's school, or that guy's going to get more sponsors. All of that kind of stuff is what just drags you down. And what I've found out, especially over the last few years, is the more you try to help other people, the more good it does for you. Mm. The more opportunities seem to open up. You reap what you sow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of a corny thing to say, and I'm not I'm not the best at it all the time. I mean, there's a lot of times that I'm snarky and I'm like, oh, I wish that dude just didn't do that, or you know, <laughs> he's not that good. You know, there's a lot of everybody's like that. I don't care who you are. You know, you can you you can say that you're not, and you can not admit it to the world. But it's a fact. You're like that. I'm like that. Um, you just have to learn how to rein it in. You have to learn how to control it. And I think controlling the beast is the whole is the key to everything. Mm. And then being able to get yourself to the point where you're willing to help anybody and everybody, no matter whether it comes back to you or not, is important because sooner or later it will. Mm -hmm. Sooner or later it's going to come back to you. Um, or it's going to open up another opportunity that you didn't even see coming. Because you talk to this company for this guy, mm -hmm. and then a company that worked with that company all of a sudden says, oh, I heard you were working with this guy. Well, I'd like to work with him. And then they call you in the back door. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's happened to me so many times, I can't even tell you, in the last few years. And so I think that ego plays a big role in our detriment. And I think controlling that beast is probably the biggest problem for anyone in this business because, again, I think we're all alpha males. I think the people that are in this business think they're the best. They want to be the best. They don't want anybody chasing their tail. Everybody has ego. You just have yep. to control it. What will that do to you if you go into a survival or a crisis situation? You take ego with you into that. Or, well, even, or even a learning situation. Let's say yeah. you have somebody that comes to your class sure. and they've got ego. Like how does, how, uh, what result, what's the result of that? It, it makes it very difficult to learn. It makes it very difficult to accomplish tasks sometimes. I mean, for me, you know, and I've probably got one of the biggest egos in the world, but I learn stuff all the time, even from my own instructors. You know, we'll sit in a round robin together, and we'll be doing a demo for students, and one instructor will say, hey, what if we did this? And I could say, shut up, dude, I'm in the school, don't say that. You know? <laughs> but I'm like, well, let's try that. And sometimes it works better, and we have developed so many things that are in the Pathfinder system now mm -hmm. have been developed from things like free thinking mm -hmm. from people outside me, and I've even had students, you know, come up to me and say, hey, have you tried to do this this way, or what if you did this this way, or I've got an idea for a product that goes with a product you've got, and it's like, if you're not willing to listen to that, and your ego's like, well, I don't need to hear what you got to say, I already know it all, right. then 
you lose out on so many opportunities. You learn out. For me, I always go to bed at night thinking if I don't learn something new tomorrow, just I might as well be dead. Right. I want to learn something new every single day. And so that's one thing I strive to do is I try to learn something from somebody that I didn't know every day. Yep. So you're traveling a lot. You got cool. some things coming up. You want to just talk talk to oh you know what's going on, what's coming up. Um, you know, what your wife said you cannot do <laughs> because you've got too many things going yeah, yeah. on. I know she talked to you about yeah, that she, today. She's <laughs> dropping the hammer on me on the travel right now for sure. Um, What's going on with know, Dave? We're getting a lot of opportunities right now to travel overseas. Okay. Um, I think that the longer you're in this business, obviously, it doesn't make you better than anybody else. It just means that you've been around long enough, more people know who you are. Mm -hmm. And so we get a lot of opportunities to travel. One of the biggest opportunities I've had in the last 10 years is to be the global ambassador for Mark Neve mm -hmm. because they're a worldwide company. Mm -hmm. So I've got a lot of chance to travel for Mark Neve. Oh, That's okay. gotten me more well known overseas. Oh, I didn't realize that that was, yeah. that was all connected to your travel. A lot of it is connected, nice, yeah. So nice. like, okay. there's a Mark Neve adventure in Sweden every year. Another one of those the, opportunities you probably didn't even imagine correct. that when you started talking to them. I mean, yeah, right. when I first, you know, I'll be honest with you, when I first started working with Mora, it's kind of a funny story because a lot of people ask me, how did you get started with Mora? I got started with Mora at SHOT Show. Okay? Okay. Opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. It's there. I walk up to the Mora booth and Bjorn Ackerbloom, who's like the number two guy at Mora, who's like my brother now, mm -hmm. was standing at the counter. <coughs> I walked up to the Mora Kneep counter and I said, let me tell you what's wrong with your knives. There's that ego, right? right. Let me tell you what's wrong with your knives. <laughs> We've been making knives for 125 years. You're going to tell me what's wrong with my knives, right? I said, you need a full tang knife. You need a 90 degree spine. Right, well, here we are, six years, seven years later, mm -hmm. and we've got a full tang, carbon steel, Mora Garberg. Mm -hmm. So his ego was better than mine, because my ego was, let me tell you what's wrong with your knife. Mm -hmm. His ego was, tell me what's wrong with it. Mm -hmm. I'm listening, mm -hmm. right? And so that was a huge learning lesson for me, mm -hmm. right there, to have someone who's, after I realized, you know, I was carrying a Mora around my neck in 2007 when I was doing videos on YouTube. Um, and then I kind of got away from that. And after talking to him and then learning more of the history behind a knife and learning the history of the company mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. its application within a woodland environment and how it was developed over time, you know, my, my relationship with Mora is like family. And so that's given me a lot of opportunity to travel. And then on top of that, the longer you're in business, the more people know who you are, the more offers you get for things. Come to the Bushcraft Show, which mm -hmm. is in England. Come here. Come there. You know, we've been invited to China this week. We've been invited to Taiwan this week. We've been invited to Poland this week. So all of those things allow you to get your, number one, to gain knowledge from people that you may have, because they all do mm -hmm. things different, mm -hmm. right? I learned so many things from Swedish woodsmen that I never knew. You know, that's, that's unbelievable. Yeah. And you learn, when I went to Finland, I learned things from them that were different than what they do in Sweden, different than what we do in the U.S. So you get all that knowledge that you can learn something new every day. So you're giving, but you're gaining back. And you're gaining you're back because people know who you are and recognize yep. you. And so now to this point, you know, there's a lot of people that know who we are and know what we do. And, I, and that's a great advantage to us. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's also a learning thing for me because when I go to those countries, I can't speak their language. So there's a language right. barrier there. Right. I have to be very humble to try to understand what they're saying and listen to what they're saying and try to communicate with them. You know, I did a more adventure in Japan last year. And in, in a country like Sweden, they all speak English. It's their second language. They learn it in grade school. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy to communicate in Sweden with people. You get over to Japan, it's a whole different ballgame. Mm -hmm. You know, English is really not their second language, especially in rural areas of Japan. And without a translator, you know, you almost don't have a hope and a prayer sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so trying to teach people in Japan 
was a whole different humbling experience than trying to teach somebody you can actually communicate with. I can right. tell you something and you understand what I'm saying. You understand the slang, you understand the lingo. You try to teach somebody over there to tie a square knot and they look at you like you're from outer space. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, for me, it's, I get to learn something new every, new every day, you know, and just learning how to deal with people, learning how to communicate with people um, is almost as valuable to me now in this business than learning a new skill because it's a new life skill. That's, that's fantastic. So before we go, I'm going to ask you three bonus questions uh, for our, bonus questions. for our, these are for our Patreon subscribers. Oh, okay. you have Patreon going. We have Patreon going. So okay. you can go thesurvivalshow.com okay. to get Dave's answers to these questions. All right. And, uh, but before we, I ask you these three questions, uh, how can people find you? You can find me on my website at selfrelianceoutfitters.com. You can email me personally at pathfindersurvival at gmail.com. You can find me on YouTube at Wilderness Outfitters, Dave Canterbury, Self-Reliance Outfitters. Anything you type in yep. YouTube will probably get me up there. Um, you can find me on Adams Media's website under their authors. You can find me on Mark Neve's website under their global ambassador. So, I mean, there's, you just type my name in Google, you'll find me. Yeah. It's pretty simple. The internet blows up. Yeah, it's pretty simple. <laughs> so the three questions I want to ask you, you ready for this? Okay. Okay. So the first thing is, if you could take one thing with you in an urban survival situation, what would you take? A multi-tool. You're not supposed to say the answer yet. Sorry. Okay, so you guys got a freebie. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Bad. Okay, we got two more though. Okay. <laughs> okay, the most important wilderness skill for a beginner. And, and, is there a backstory behind your ponytail and why do you wear it? <laughs> Okay, so if you guys want to hear Dave's answers to those two questions, sorry, we'll talk about the third one too about multi tools. Sure. Why you would pick that in an okay. urban survival situation? Because it's interesting. We just had E.J. Snyder in here, and he said the same thing. Did he really? He did. He absolutely did. And uh, so, if you want to hear Dave's answers, go over to patreon.com forward slash the survival show, or go to survivalshow.com. And Dave, thank you so much oh, for welcome. spending the time coming in, making time in your schedule to do this. For sure. Okay, man. Thank All you right, so brother. much. Thank you. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you want to hear Dave's answers to the bonus questions at the end of our interview, go over to thesurvivalshow.com now and sign up to access not only Dave's answers, but a ton of other exclusive backer content and i just want to ask you guys to go over and thank dave for joining us on this podcast it means a lot to these guys check out dave's stuff over at dave canterbury on facebook self-reliance outfitters or anywhere else that you find him so right now i'm going to ask you to do two maybe three things first go search out dave and thank him and support what he is doing in any way that you feel led and please, please, please support this podcast. We literally can't do this without your support. One way you can do this is go over to www.thesurvivalshow.com. And I also want to ask you guys to go ahead and share this podcast. Please give us a five-star rating and a sweet review wherever you are listening right now. That's all free. You can also grab some helpful free content and join the tribe over at thesurvivalshow.com. And we do have a new website coming soon. So look for that. And if you have not already done so, you need to go over to tinysurvivalgear.com and pick up some tiny survival guides for yourself and all those that you love and care about. A lot of you know that you are supporting what Craig and I are doing here because 
we wrote, designed, illustrated, and are selling the guide. So all the money stays right here at home and gets reinvested in things like this podcast for you. Coming soon, we have Les Stroud, other great guests. Plus, Craig and I will be digging into essential first aid, worst case threats. And with summer fast approaching, we'll be talking about how to get the most out of your summer as you hike, camp, backpack, and go to cool places on vacation. All right, guys, I'm David. Thanks for listening. And remember, keep it simple, be positive, and stay sharp.